Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, today is the 18-year anniversary of the tragic events that surrounded the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center and Pentagon back in 2001. And, you know, I don't want to make light of the suffering of any of those individuals. Uh, Many of them died tragically, of course. I think 3,000-plus Americans lost their lives, not only the people who lost their lives on the ground, but also the ones that were aboard the airplanes and those that actually fought to uh, save one of the planes from crashing into, I think, I believe uh, the White House. Not really sure what the target was of that fourth plane, which ended up going down in the field. Uh, But thousands of people lost their lives. And of course, thousands of families were profoundly affected by those events, and they're still affected by those events today. So what I'm about to say is not to minimize uh, their suffering or, or what they experienced, because clearly none of us uh, you know, experienced it to that degree. But there are 300 million or so Americans who were not personally affected uh, by those events, other than the fact that we certainly empathize with our fellow citizens who did have to endure Uh, the tragedy on a more personal level. But on a broader uh, level, uh, the biggest loss uh, historically from those events is not just the people that actually lost their lives and the family members uh, who lost loved ones, but all Americans who lost individual liberty and freedom. I mean, that is the real tragedy, historic tragedy of 9-11 is the tremendous loss of individual liberty and freedom. America today is a far less free society than it was prior to those attacks 18 years ago. And that means that the terrorists won, right? They didn't win based on the damage that they inflicted. They won based on the damage that we inflicted to ourselves, right? The self-inflicted wounds are much greater on a national scale than uh, what the terrorists did directly. And it's not just the 300 million Americans who are alive today. It's all the Americans yet to be born who are going to be born in to a society that is far less free than America would have been but for these attacks. And I'm specifically referring to all of the legislation that was passed 
During the Bush administration, George Bush, a Republican president, we have Bush to thank for all this, but he was the president when all of our freedoms and liberties were diminished. And, you know, there's an old saying, right, never let a tragedy uh, go to waste, right? And the government certainly did everything that it could to exploit this tragedy, to scare Americans into surrendering more of their liberties and their freedom because now we needed to be protected from future acts of terrorism. And so uh, the war on terror, like all previous wars, resulted in Americans losing uh, their liberty. I mean, my father used to tell me that America lost every war, right? Not be, not that we actually lost it on the battlefield, but we always ended a war less free than when we began. Because what happens is during the war, governments are able to do things that they could never do during peacetime because people aren't going to protest because the government wraps up what they're doing in these patriotic uh, uh, you know, ribbons and bows and nobody is going to impose something when you're at war because, hey, you're not patriotic. And in fact, the uh, legislation that immediately uh, followed the terrorist attacks, the Patriot Act, right? Here is an act, Patriot Act. Who could be anti-Patriot Act, right? Who could be so unpatriotic? It's like if you're opposed to the Patriot Act, well, then you're some kind of a traitor. But of course, the Patriot Act was one of the most unpatriotic pieces of legislation ever passed. I mean, basically, all of our uh, privacy was lost. I mean, all these arguments about whether or not, uh, you know, the Internet, uh, Google or Facebook, whether or not they're violating our privacy, who cares? I don't care if an advertising company knows things about me. What is it going to do with that information? It's going to try to make sure that I see ads that I'm more likely interested in than ads that I'm not, right? They're trying to sell me things that I might want to buy. Big deal. I'm not worried about Google uh, knowing uh, what I prefer so they can make my life easier by targeting to me ads of things that they think I might want to buy because they can't force me to buy anything. So if I decide to buy something because I saw an advertisement on Google or Facebook, then obviously I gain from that transaction because I wouldn't have bought the product if I didn't want it. And then maybe Google made it easier for me uh, to find a particular product. Where I am concerned is when government has all this information about me because government can use this information against me in ways that I'm not happy about. Because when it comes to my interactions with the private sector, that's all voluntary for mutual benefit. I don't interact voluntarily with the U.S. government, right? They give orders and I have to obey them, right? They take things from me. I don't give the government my money. They take money from me, whether I want them to take it or not. And if I you know, try to prevent them, right, then theoretically they can put me in jail. Well, I mean, Google, no private company can put me in jail if I don't want to buy their product. Therefore, they have to earn my business by offering me a product that's better or lower price than anybody else. But the Patriot Act basically and the anti-money laundering acts that were part of the Patriot Act, basically what these acts did is it destroyed all financial privacy in the United States and it turned every single uh, agent in banking or in brokerage into unpaid spies for the U.S. government, right? Every single banker, every broker, myself included, we have all been conscripted into involuntary service to the U.S. government. At great expense to myself, I have to spy on all of my clients. I have to snoop into everything that they do, and I have to look for suspicious activity. Anything that may look like money laundering, tax evasion, whatever it is, if we see any transactions that look to be suspicious in that one of our customers may be trying to evade taxes or launder money or something like that, we are required by law to turn over all of this information. We file these suspicious activities information. We have to alert the authorities that we think there may be something going on. Now, even if nothing is going on, if we see something that could be suspicious, we have to report it to the government. So now the government can go after our clients for whatever they think they might have done wrong. And of course, when we get audited, and the same thing with all the banks in the country, when they're audited, if you fail to report to the government a suspicious activity, 
you get fined, right? You get punished. You can go to jail. So we are forced by law to rat out our fellow citizens if we think they may be doing something wrong. They may not have been doing anything wrong, but we have to tell the government so the government can go after them. I mean, what kind of society is that? I mean, that sounds like something out of Nazi Germany. Yet that's what we're all living with in America, right? Where we're spying uh, on each other. And I don't even like, I feel badly. We have to ask all these questions to our clients. Uh, and, and a lot of it is really none of our business. And I understand when people get angered that we're asking questions that are really none of our damn business. Well, it's the government that requires us to get answers to these questions. Oh, you want to check? What are you doing with the money? Oh, you're sending money into your account? Where did it come from? I mean, we have to go through all this stuff at my bank, at your Pacific Bank. I mean, people send money in. They want to have wires out. We have to ask all sorts of questions. You know, way back when, you know, if somebody asked you, right, hey, what are you doing with that money, right? You know, I, you're asking for a wire. What's the purpose of it? Who, where is it going? It's, you would just say it's none of your goddamn business. It's my money. I'm doing what I want with it. That's the kind of America I want to live in. I don't want to live in America where Big Brother knows everything that I do. Now, of course, supposedly the reason for all this is so we can catch the terrorists, right? I mean, come on. What's what's the percent of people that are making monetary transactions that may in fact be terrorists? It's a minute amount. In fact, the government is doing more damage to our individual liberties, our freedoms, and our economy trying to prevent another terrorist attack than what would happen if the terrorists actually attacked us, right? So in other words, we're, we're losing more protecting ourselves from terrorism than a terrorist would get. I mean, it'd be like if I wanted to protect myself from being robbed, right? And so I installed all kinds of expensive, elaborate alarm systems to protect my house, but I ended up spending to protect my house money that vastly exceeded the entire value of the house and all of its content, meaning that even if somebody robbed me, they couldn't possibly get as much money as I spent preventing them from robbing me. That's what's actually happening. When you look at all of the things that we've done to protect us from terrorism, you know, if we hadn't done any of it, right, <laughs> the terrorists themselves could not do as much damage to the economy as we've already done to ourselves. And of course, that's not saying that, hey, we should have done nothing. I mean, there are simple things that we could have done uh, after 9-11. I mean, we didn't have to do all these laws. And, you know, we didn't have to come, you know, come up with the Department of Homeland Security on top of the Department of Defense. I mean, can't the Department of Defense defend us? We had to come up with a whole new bureaucratic agency that we never had before called the Department of Homeland Security. What about all these TSA agents? I mean, are they really making us safer? I doubt it. I mean, the most the only thing that we probably did right, as a result of 9-11 that made us safer is locking the cockpit doors. I mean, how much does that cost? Just put locks on the doors or maybe arm the pilot. I mean, there's some easy things that you could do. But no, we way overreacted. The government took advantage of the hysteria of, you know, of the images of those towers going down and lives being lost, right, to ram down all this unpatriotic uh, legislation to increase government power and diminish individual liberty. And, and so when we look back at the events of 18 years ago, in addition to mourning the lies that were lost, we can't forget to mourn the freedoms that were lost, the liberties that were lost. And America, you know, there's an old saying that those who give up essential liberties to obtain uh, temporary safety, or I forget the exact quote, uh, but deserve uh, neither liberty nor safety. And the irony is that you end up losing both, which, of course, we're going to do because you sell your soul to the devil when you make a deal with the government uh, to keep you safe. So while I'm talking, though, about the government, I want to talk about the president, Donald Trump, and some uh, tweet that came out earlier today in which he's now calling the uh, guys at the Federal Reserve, I guess, uh, uh, Powell in particular, boneheads. They're now boneheads. And the reason that he is calling them boneheads is because they are not lowering interest rates to zero or lower. So the president is saying if the Federal Reserve was not run by a bunch of boneheads, interest rates would be at zero or lower, meaning negative interest rates right now. Right? I can't think of a more boneheaded thing to do than to have interest rates negative. But Trump is saying that are fed are boneheads because they're not 
uh, bringing rates negative. And the reason that Trump says this is a boneheaded move to not have negative interest rates is because he says if the Fed would only work with us and bring interest rates to negative, we could refinance the national debt. We could take all this high-yielding debt and refinance it at lower rates, and we could lengthen the maturities, right? We could take some of these short-term uh, bonds or notes and refinance it with 10 or 30 or 50-year bonds, and we could lock in these super low rates if it wasn't for these boneheads at the Federal Reserve. See, the problem is Trump could already do that. He doesn't need interest rates to go negative. Interest rates right now are near historic lows. The 10-year Treasury yield is still below 2%. Right? In fact, yields have been backing up uh, for the past five days or so. We did get as low as 1.429 on the 10-year. right? And right now we're back up at 1.733 on the 10-year. And even on the 30-year, which dipped below 2%, which was an all-time record low when it got below 2% last week, it's now back above 2.2%. But these are still historically low uh, rates of interest. So if President Trump actually cared about refinancing the national debt and uh, lengthening the maturity uh, of the debt, right, the duration, and locking in these low interest rates, lock them in. They're already super low. I mean, even if the Fed went to zero, the odds that the 30-year yield would come down much below 2% are very slim. In fact, I think it's more likely that if the Fed actually slashed rates to zero right now, long-term interest rates would go up, not down, because the, the market would start to factor in the extra inflation that would be created over that 30-year time period because the Fed slashed rates to zero or negative like Trump wants. So if Trump's goal is to refinance all the short-term debt, to lengthen the maturity of the national debt, to lock in these low 10, 20, 30-year rates, he doesn't want the Fed to go to zero. He should be locking them in right now. What is stopping Trump from doing what he claims he wants to do but for the boneheads at the Fed? You know, when Donald Trump was a candidate, he actually talked about, hey, we need to lock in these rates, right? The, 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 the national debt is financed with short-term debt. Well, here is the reality, right? Talk is cheap. Right. Or tweets are cheap in particular. What about actions? Right. Actions speak a lot louder than tweets. And Trump's actions are the opposite. During the Trump presidency, the average maturity on the national debt has actually been shortened. So instead of locking in these super low, historically low long term interest rates, Trump has done the opposite. He has been borrowing more on the short run and not borrowing on the long run. So he, the, the average maturity on the $22.6 trillion national debt is now lower than it was when Trump became president. So he's doing the opposite of what he claims he wants to do. And he claims the only way he can do this good stuff is if the Fed lowers interest rates to zero or negative. No, he could do it right now. There's nothing stopping the president from doing exactly what he says he wants to do if the Fed would only cooperate. What's actually stopping Trump from doing it is because politically he doesn't want to take a chance on doing it because if the president did try to refinance the national debt by selling more long-term bonds, long-term rates would go up and that would undermine the housing market and the economy. So what President Trump is doing, he's making the same BS political trade-off that Obama made and that Bush made and that Clinton made and that he's doing what's good politically for himself. He's kicking the can down the road. He's postponing the day of reckoning by saying, you know what, even though this is a ticking time bomb, right? Because when interest rates eventually go up, that's, that's it, right? That's when the chickens come home to roost. But in the meantime, let's keep interest rates as low as possible, and so we're going to have a short maturity. Again, it's like, to put it in the perspective of an individual, it's like having an adjustable rate mortgage as opposed to a fixed rate mortgage. Why would somebody have an adjustable rate mortgage? Well, because the interest payments are lower right now, right? Well, why would you have a fixed rate? Well, let me pay more now for the insurance policy against what if rates go up in the future? I want to make sure that I can still afford my mortgage in the future. So I'm going to forego the lower cost of an adjustable rate for the security of a fixed rate. Well, when you're a politician and you have a four-year term, what do you give a damn what happens to interest rates in 
10 years. You're not going to be president in 10 years. If it's you're a homeowner and you have a 30-year mortgage, you're worried about what happens over 30 years. So you're not just going to do something that helps you now that may really hurt you for the majority of the time that you're making those mortgage payments. But if you're a president and you're going to be out in four years or eight years, you don't give a damn what happens in 10 years or 15 years. That's someone else's problem. So you're just going to take the adjustable rate mortgage because you get to benefit the here and now. And somebody else is going to deal with the consequences. So Trump is a complete hypocrite trying to pretend that it's the Fed. It's the boneheads at the Fed. He could do it right now. He doesn't need the cooperation of the Fed. And, of course, the other problem is if the government actually tried to sell all these 30-year bonds, who would be dumb enough to buy them? I mean, I don't know how they've got people dumb enough to buy them now. But if we tried to sell trillions and trillions of dollars more, I mean, I know that P.T. Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute, but I don't know if there's enough minutes in a year for there to be enough suckers required to buy all these long-term treasuries that they would have to issue. In fact, look at what's going on. I read an article this week about the Russians. They are now issuing uh, yuan, Chinese yuan, denominated bonds to the Chinese. I mean, you've got... The whole world already trying to move away from the U.S. dollar. It would be very, very difficult for us to even attempt to refinance the national debt. And Trump knows that. So he's not even making any attempt to do that. He's, in fact, doing the opposite by shortening those maturities and even exposing us to a greater shock. But again, because it benefits him in the short run, he's taking more risk for the taxpayer in the long run. But again, he's pretending that it's because of the Federal Reserve. Oh, if it was only for the Fed, the Fed's the Fed. He's kind of like rehearsing now for the election, right? Because he wants to blame everything that has gone wrong on the Federal Reserve rather than accepting responsibility himself. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now, another piece of economic news that came out on Monday that I think supports the fact that the U.S. economy is headed for recession, of course, the media always spins it a, a different way, was we got the report on consumer credit, and it was supposed to come in at $16.1 billion, which would have been an increase of the $14.6 billion from the month prior. And they ended up revising down the June month uh, to $13.8 billion. But July number came out not at $16.1 billion, but at $22.3 billion on a surge in credit card debt, right? Not auto debt or student loans, but credit card debt was really the driving factor, right? A huge amount of, of debt racked up on credit cards. And you know, this is happening despite the fact that I hadn't even realized this, but credit card interest rates now are averaging about, you know, 18 and a half to 21, 22%. I mean, it's like an 18 year high in credit card rates. So even though the 10 year treasury is at an all time low, right? Or the 30 year treasury is at an all time low, we have these record low interest rates. Consumers on credit cards are paying the highest rates of interest in 18 years. Now, why would this be happening, right? I mean, one reason is because the government has put on additional regulation supposedly to protect consumers. And I've talked about that on this podcast and how that was going to backfire as it always happens. So because of the cost of complying with all these additional regulations that are supposedly there to protect the consumer, now the consumer has to pay much higher interest rates uh, when he borrows money on his credit card. But the other reason that interest rates are rising on credit cards is because the risk to the lenders is growing. Because what happens on a credit card, right? There's no security on a credit card, right? At least if you buy a house and you have a mortgage, you know, if you don't pay the mortgage, the lender can take your house and sell it and get, you know, hopefully all of his money back if he can, if he got a big enough down payment or if the market hasn't crashed. And there are other forms. Even an auto loan is secured by your car, right? But a credit card loan is secured by nothing. 
right? They're not going to go and, and, and repossess, you know, whatever you bought. I mean, obviously, if you went to a restaurant or took a vacation, there's nothing there. But even if you use your credit card to buy some consumer good, I mean, they, they're not going to go after your used TVs or your used clothes. So there's really no collateral at all. It's an unsecured loan. And so you go bankrupt and it's gone, right? The lender doesn't get anything. Well, if more and more people are not repaying their credit card loans because they can't do it, well, now the credit card companies have to charge higher rates of interest to make up for all the losses on the, the money they lend out that they never get back. So the fact that you're seeing rates at an 18-year high is going to tell you that the credit card lending is getting riskier because more and more borrowers are not paying back what they owe. And that would be a sign of a weakening economy. Consumers are in trouble and they can't pay their bills, right? So this is more anecdotal evidence that the economy is weak that everybody wants to ignore. But again, the classic reaction from all the pundits to this jump in consumer credit is, oh yeah, this is great news. It shows the economy is really strong because the consumer has the courage to go out and borrow money because he's so confident in his future and his ability to repay it that he's celebrating and going out and, and buying stuff on credit, which is all a bunch of BS. I mean, I've used this example many times on this podcast. In fact, uh, Jeff Gunlock has used the example, too, on CNBC. Uh, but, it, you know, it's where you run into an old buddy of yours that you hadn't seen since uh, college and you ask him, hey, how you doing? And if the guy tells you, oh, well, you know, I've maxed out all my credit cards. I just took out a second mortgage on my house and I cleaned out my retirement money, you know, my retirement accounts. I mean, how is this guy doing? Right. He's borrowing all this money. He's going into debt. That's not you wouldn't think, God, man, you're doing great. But if you ran into a friend and your friend told you, you know, I asked him, how are you doing? He says, oh, you know, uh, I just paid off all my credit cards. I paid off my mortgage. I owe my house free and clear now. I'm completely out of debt. I fully funded my IRAs and my 401k. If a guy told you that, you wouldn't think, gee, that guy's doing horrible. I mean, no. I mean, you have to be doing well to be paying off your debt, to be getting out of debt, right? That's 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 a goal, right? To get out of debt, to be debt free, right? Americans' goal isn't to have as much debt as possible, right? And so to say that rising levels of consumer debt is a sign that everybody is doing great. No, it's not. I mean, especially with 18% interest. I mean, who would borrow money at 18% interest if they had a choice? If they had any other way of paying for something, wouldn't they do that? Right? And in fact, there was just a poll that came out, an ABC poll, uh, and 6 out of 10 Americans think a recession is coming soon. Six out of 10. Very bad poll for the president. Uh, I think he dropped about six points. Again, he's falling further and further behind. Now the president is calling these polls fake news, right? He's saying it's all BS. The media is out to get him. So they're lying about these polls because he's the greatest president ever. He's accomplished more than any other president in history. Remember, right? He's selling himself like Trump stakes, right? He's puffing it up and he's saying, how can I possibly be so low in the polls when I'm the greatest president in history? Therefore, the polls must be wrong because the people must appreciate how great I am and how great the economy is. And so the media is just out to get me. And so they're fabricating these phony polls. But assuming the polls are accurate, which they probably are, I mean, they're legitimate polls, right? So you've got six out of 10 people thinking that the economy is headed for a recession, right? Well, if you thought the economy was headed for a recession now, would you be running up your credit card bills if you didn't have a choice, right? If you thought that maybe you would lose your job, Right. Why would you want to go out and buy more stuff that you can't afford and put it on a credit card? You wouldn't. Right. If you thought times were going to get bad, you would want to have a bigger cushion. You might really cut back right on on your spending. And I know somebody said, well, if times are good, aren't you going to use your credit card? Well, no, if times are good, you won't need to use your credit card. You'll have more income. Spend that. If you're actually earning more money, then use your higher income to buy stuff. Don't put it on a credit card and pay 18%. But the last thing you would do, if you knew a recession was coming, you would certainly want to build up a, a nest egg. You would want a rainy day fund. You wouldn't go out and commit yourself to being in more debt, right? I mean, that, that doesn't even make sense. Uh, but again, that's what's happening. Now, what makes sense to me is if you have no choice, right, let's say a lot of the stuff that Americans are buying with their credit cards are the essentials. What if you're buying your food 
on your credit card, right? What if you're, you know, you're paying utilities or whatever you're doing? I mean, there are certain things that you just have to do. And even if you have to borrow money at 18%, well, you're going to do it. And maybe that's what's going on. People are putting their gas on, on their credit cards. Now, of course, there also is the idea that some Americans know that, you know what, I'm probably going to go bankrupt, right? This is the moral hazard of this unsecured debt. So if you know the economy is getting bad and you're probably going to have to go bankrupt, you might as well go out with a bang, right? You might as well go out and buy a bunch more stuff because if you have $10,000 in credit card debt, you might as well run it up to 20 or 30, get as much debt as you can because now you can buy a bunch of stuff and then go bankrupt because you get to keep the stuff. Because if you go bankrupt now, you won't be able to buy the stuff because you won't be able to get another credit card for a while. So you might as well load up on stuff and take on as much debt as possible. So that also might be happening. But I think that this you know, the surge in, in credit card debt, again, is another sign that the economy is weak, that people are financial, financially are stressed, and they're having to resort to paying interest rates that are at 18-year highs in order uh, to make ends meet. Now, now, you think some people might, hey, let me try to refinance my house, because if I can refinance my house, I can pay off my credit card debt, right, and now replace it with uh, lower cost debt. But then, of course, you're trading unsecured debt for secured debt because now uh, the lender can take your house, whereas before they had they had nothing to take. But a lot of people probably can't refinance. They probably don't have uh, the equity in their home or maybe they don't have the credit score in order to do it. Uh, so they're stuck. And I think, again, this is just another sign that the economy is weakening and why you have six out of 10 people in this poll who know that the economy is headed for recession. And of course, if it's headed for recession, that is very bad news for Trump. No matter how much he wants to deny reality, it is what it is. Now, a couple of stories that are in the news this week that I wanted to comment on. One is these this antitrust action that's being brought by the states against Google, right? Somehow trying to break up Google uh, because it's a monopoly or something like that. And this is all a bunch of nonsense I mean, first of all, I don't even agree with the whole concept of the government breaking up monopolies. I mean, I didn't agree with the Sherman Antitrust Act or the Clayton Antitrust Act. I mean, I don't think that uh, Standard Oil or Alcoa or any of these companies back then uh, should have been broken up. And in fact, I don't think that they were gouging the consumers. I mean, in theory, they were claiming that these companies had achieved monopoly or near monopoly status. And what is supposedly bad about a monopoly is when you are a monopolist, you can gouge the consumers, you can jack prices up because you don't have any competition. But what actually happened in those earlier cases like Alcoa or um, Standard Oil is uh, they weren't gouging the customers at all. But you had other competitors who were having a hard time meeting the low costs. But what they were arguing to the court was, you know, these guys have super low prices now, but once they drive us out of business, they're going to jack the prices back up, way up. So to prevent them from driving us out of business and then jacking up the prices, we need to break them up right now. And I think it was a mistake because there's no proof that they actually would have done it. It's like trying to punish somebody for a crime they haven't committed yet. Hey, I think this person is going to commit murder, so let's charge him with murder now to prevent the crime. Right. The consumers were not protesting uh, Standard Oil or Alcoa Aluminum. It was their competitors. But supposedly uh, we're not trying to keep a free market so to, to make it fair for the competitors. We're supposed to just have the consumer get the lowest price and the highest quality. And I just don't believe because the whole idea is, well, a monopolist is going to drive people out of business. And once everybody's out of business, he's free to raise prices. But you know what? It doesn't happen because the minute you raise prices, now somebody comes and competes it away. Right. I mean, so when would he do start, you know, cut your prices again or start losing money? I mean, the whole thing is nonsense. The only time we really have monopolies is when the government grants a monopoly. Right. The government gives a monopolist the license and then uses the power of the government, the power of force to legally prevent competition. So the government actually creates monopolies. It doesn't uh, bust up monopolies. It it enables monopolies. The free market is your best defense against a monopoly. And of course, if you know there's a company that's so efficient that they give you the lowest price and they give you great quality, then it doesn't matter if there's only one company. Right. If the monopolist isn't gouging me, then what difference does it make? Right. It doesn't matter. But here's what's really interesting about what the states are trying to do with Google, right? Because even if Google was a monopoly, are they overcharging their customers? 
They don't charge their customers anything. It's free. I've never paid to search on Google. It's completely free. So how are you going to say they're gouging me when they're charging me zero? <laughs> so, so, But now, of course, I know people can say, well, individuals aren't really the consumers. The consumers are the advertisers, right? They're the customers. They're the ones that are paying. But the the antitrust laws, and I don't even know how the states are, are going after it because normally it's the federal government that, that does this, but the antitrust laws are there to protect individuals, not businesses, not advertisers. And first of all, there's no way that Google has a monopoly on advertising, right? No advertiser is forced to advertise using Google. They can advertise through all sorts of ways. Google is just one. There's no way Google could ever monopolize advertising where companies would say, look, I have no choice. Either I advertise with Google or I have no way of advertising my products. But again, the antitrust laws aren't to protect businesses. They're to protect individuals, the consumer, not not an advertiser saying, hey, these guys are charging me too much to advertise on their platform. So the whole thing is complete nonsense that uh, Google is a monopoly because it's not. There are other search engines out there that people could use. Most people don't use them because Google is the best one. And since it's free, well, then, you know, people use it. Now, of course, I know there are people that complain about, well, you know, they sell my information, right? Uh, you know, I, I lose my privacy when I use Google. And you can say the same thing about Facebook or any of these other companies. Fine. If you value your privacy, then don't use Google. Don't use Facebook. Find the search engine that doesn't do that. But of course, the reason that Google can provide the service for free to you is because it's able to charge advertisers. You know, I mean, the same thing happens with television, right? If you watch commercial television, you don't have to pay any money to watch ABC, NBC, but you have to watch commercials. That's the trade-off. If you want to subscribe to a subscription service that has no commercials, then you pay more. I mean, a lot of companies do this. Like you could sign up an account for Hulu and I forget what the monthly subscription is, but you pay a certain amount of money for a subscription, which includes the ads. If you don't want to see the ads, you pay extra money and there's no ads. And so if you're willing to pay extra money, you don't have to see ads. Well, the same thing could happen with privacy. I mean, companies could create search engines that don't share their information, that have no advertising, but they would charge you for every search. Now, most Americans don't want to pay. They don't care. And again, like I said earlier in this program, I don't care if Google or Facebook know things about me, right? If they know what I like and what I don't like, because all they can do is take that information and try to use it to help make my life better. Right? I don't want government having all this information, but I don't mind if a private company has it who can only use it to benefit me. I don't want the government to have it that could use it to harm me. So if people really want to choose not to use Google because they want a, a, a more private experience, then they could do it. But most Americans don't care. right? And so they use Google and they're very happy. I've never heard anybody complain about Google, right? Uh, as far as being able to use it. So to say we got to break them up, for what? For I mean, this whole thing is nonsense, and it shouldn't even be a story. But I think it's popular uh, with uh, some of the politicians because it sounds good to the voters. Oh, these big, gigantic companies, right? Big Brother, they're spying on you. Big Brother is when the government is spying on you. It's not when a, a private business is trying to satisfy your, your needs and your desires by tailoring ads to you on products that might improve your life and that you might want to buy. But you've got a lot of, uh, at the federal government, uh, you know, saying the same things and investigating these companies. We'll see if this actually goes anywhere. My guess is that the state uh, uh, efforts won't go anywhere because I think they'll be able to succeed in saying, look, this is not a state issue. This is a federal issue. Uh, but maybe the federal government will pick up uh, the baton and bring these type of actions too, because it probably sounds good uh, on the campaign trail, but in reality, like everything that they do, it backfires. Like another piece of news that I want to talk about that came out today, right? This is in California. They have a, a bill now that passed the Senate in California. It hasn't been signed into law yet, but the governor uh, seems to support it. So it might actually make it. And what this law does is it basically defines all of the you know independent contractors that work at Lyft and Google, but of course it applies to a lot more companies, but these are the, the biggest examples and this is the impetus for the change. But it, it mandates that all these independent contractors are employees, 
right? And of course, the governments always want uh, people to be employees. They don't like uh, independent contractors. They've never done, particularly California. It's already very difficult. Uh, and they make it hard for independent contractors, and many of them end up having to be employees. They don't want to. I mean, generally, when you're an independent contractor, it's by choice, right? It's not your employer saying you got to be an independent contractor. A lot of people prefer uh, the flexibility and the tax advantages of being an independent contractor and running your own business. It's a lot more lucrative, especially now, you know, after they change the tax laws. Because if you are an employee of a company, and now you have some business expenses that your employer doesn't reimburse. Maybe you have a home office. Maybe you have a car that you use for business. You used to be able to write that stuff off. There was a limited, you know, it, 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 the first 2% as a percentage of your income, you couldn't write off. But anything above that, you could write off. Now you can't write off any of your business expenses that your employer uh, doesn't reimburse. But if you're self-employed, you can write everything off. The same thing with, you know, legal bills. I mean, now I, I, I think I mentioned on this podcast before that if you hire a lawyer and now you can't deduct your legal bills from any, from, from your recovery. But if you're a business and a business hires the lawyer, well, then the business can deduct the cost. So today it makes more sense than ever for people to be self-employed businessmen and women than being employees. But the government wants to mandate that everybody be an employee. And the reasoning, or at least the rationale that they tell the public, is they say that Uber and Google are exploiting all their workers because since they're not employees, they're not getting all the benefits that employees would have. They're not getting a minimum wage. They're not getting uh, overtime. They're not getting health care. Uh, they're not getting other protections that would supposedly be afforded to them if they were employees but the company is not having to provide those uh, because they're independent contractors. So what this law would do is basically mandate and say, hey, if you're an Uber driver, you're no longer uh, self-employed. You are now an employee of, uh, of Uber. And supposedly this is going to benefit all of the Uber and Lyft drivers. But of course, like all government laws, uh, the, uh, the consequences will be the opposite of the intention. I mean, number one, one thing that could happen is companies like Uber and Lyft just decide, you know what, we can't do business in California anymore. And all of the people, all the workers lose those opportunities. Because remember, anybody that is working as an independent contractor for Uber or Lyft, nobody put a gun to their head and said, hey, do this. People made a decision, right? They made a decision that this is what they wanted to do. And they know the terms going in, right? They knew they weren't employees. They knew what they were going to earn. And they made an adult decision, an informed decision, and decided that they were going to take advantage of this opportunity that was being offered to them. Because if they didn't think it was an opportunity, they wouldn't have taken advantage of it, right? It takes two to tango, right? Both people have to benefit from a voluntary transaction. So Uber decides that they want to engage a contractor because they believe they benefit from the engagement. But the contractor would not accept the engagement if he did not think he was going to benefit. So all the people who are driving Ubers, if there was a job where they can get a job as an employee where they preferred that, where the salary was higher or the benefits were higher, whatever, they had the opportunity to do that. The fact that they turned down every other opportunity and decided to accept the, the Uber opportunity means that that was the best thing they could get, right? But now the government comes in and says, no, 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 that's no good because you're not getting this, you're not getting that. And so we're going to require uh, that uh, Uber employ you rather than uh, engage you as a independent contractor. Well, the thing is, they're not requiring Uber to employ anybody. What they're saying is you cannot have an independent contractor. So if you want to operate your business in our state, you you have to hire people, right? You have to make them an employee. But nobody is forcing Uber to make anybody an employee. Uber doesn't have to hire anybody. In fact, Uber, you know, can shut down and 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 then Uber's no longer going to be part of California, which could happen. Now, maybe that won't be the case. Maybe Uber will try to figure out, okay, if we actually have to employ all of these workers as employees, how are we going to restructure the business in California to be able to accommodate that? Probably in order to do that, 
uh, the workers are going to have to be on strict schedules, which means all the flexibility that a lot of people enjoy. I mean, a lot of people that, you know, you know, participate in these gigs, you know, they make their own hours. They work when they want. Right. That's part of being an independent contractor. But if you're going to be an employee, then Uber is going to tell you, here's your shift. This is when you have to work. Here's your hours. And you have to work these set hours every week. So right away, that's not going to work for a lot of people. Right. Who So a lot of people who are maybe supplementing their regular job by just driving once in a while for Uber, they're going to lose that opportunity. So they're going to lose all of their Uber income because they're no longer going to be able to fit that within the new framework that the government is now requiring. So all the people who are just supplementing jobs, they're going to lose that opportunity. They're going to lose that extra income. And there are probably some people, many people who are driving full time, but, you know, they drive when they want. Well, that's going to end. They're going to have to drive uh, in fixed schedules. And of course, all of this is going to drive up the cost of operating Uber and Lyft in California, which means the prices to use Uber and Lyft in California are going to have to be a lot higher, which may mean that consumers will not use Lyft or Uber as often. Right. If the price gets a lot higher, maybe the price goes up 50 percent or 100 percent. That means there will be less demand for Ubers or Lyfts. And if there's less demand, well, then Uber and Lyft hire fewer people in California, which they're doing anyway. Right. Because of the fact that now they have to be employees. But because the higher cost of making them employees and the loss of flexibility means the product is not as attractive to the consumer and it's more expensive, then there's not as much demand. So they don't need as many drivers because there's not as many people that are using the service. So, again, this is going to be another example where all these politicians are saying we're doing this to protect the workers. Right. We're doing this uh, to uh, make things better for the workers. But the reality is they're going to make things worse, right? Why does everybody think that politicians care more about an individual than the individual himself? I mean, I don't need some third-party bureaucrat telling me what's good for me. If a grown man or woman makes an educated choice, why doesn't the government just respect that choice? And just not think I'm a complete moron for making it. The government wants to substitute their uh, views for mine. I mean, if we're smart enough to vote, right? Everybody believes that we should vote. I mean, there are people now that think we should lower the voting age to 16. So if we're responsible enough to vote, why aren't we responsible enough to decide for ourselves if we want to take a job or not? If we want to avail ourselves of an opportunity? You know the deal going in. Uber says this is the terms of the transaction. If you want to be an independent contractor for us, this is what you're going to get paid. And if you decide to do it, well, then you do it. And if you don't like it, you stop. Nobody who's driving Ubers around is being forced. They can quit whenever they want. Right? And if they're not doing that, it's because uh, they're getting a good deal. Now, the politicians are going to say, well, they're just being exploited. How are they being exploited? They have... If nobody else is giving them a better opportunity, then Uber is doing them a favor because Uber's providing an opportunity that's better than any other opportunity that anybody else offered. Right. You get all these bureaucrats who are so upset. Oh, no, we don't like the deal that Uber's offering. OK, offer a better one. You know, I always talk to that, too. when you know, I, I you argue with a liberal and they'll say, oh, you're not paying this worker enough money. OK, well, hire him, pay him more. Right. If you think I'm underpaying somebody, well, then you go ahead and offer him a job and pay him whatever you want. Right. Usually when you're arguing with a liberal, the liberals never employ anybody. They've never employed anybody. So they, they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't understand. Although most liberals, when they indirectly employ people, right, they try to pay as low as possible. Right. I mean, any liberal, if, you know, their car needs to be uh, worked on. Right. They, you know, they're going to take their car uh, to a repair shop, maybe two or three repair shops, and they're going to get bids. And they're going to go with the lowest bidder. They're not going to go with the highest bidder. Why not? Why not just pay the highest price, right? If you, if you just want to overpay everybody, no, you're going to shop around and you're going to get uh, the lowest cost. I mean, if you go, you know, maybe you're looking to get your hair cut. I mean, you ask what they charge and maybe talk to a few salons and then, you know, go with one that's less money. No, I mean, feel free. Or, you know, when you go to a, to a barber, you know, give a big tip. You know, some of the liberals are some of the stingiest tippers out there as far as, you know, they're demanding that the employers uh, pay people more money, 
but they don't want to contribute to it at all. I mean, they're always uh, trying to pay as little as possible. And I'm not saying that they can't do that, but they're hypocrites when they do that. And if you're going to say, oh, you know, this company is not paying the workers enough, they're not providing a good enough job, well, provide one yourself. Do a better job then. If you have not providing any jobs for anybody, then how are you criticizing the quality of the jobs that other people are providing when you yourself are providing none? Actually, I just realized, too, I've done this entire podcast and I haven't even spoken about the market. Although I did speak a little bit about interest rates in the bond market. The bond market has been falling, meaning interest rates have been rising. But the stock market has been going in the other direction. The stock market has been going up. In fact, the Dow Jones today closed up better than 200 points. We're now back above 27,000. We closed at 27,137. That's less than 300 points from a new all-time record high, right? A record high in the Dow was 27,398.68. So we're, you know, within spitting distance of a new record high, yet the Federal Reserve is about to cut interest rates yet again. But of course, the only reason the stock market is close to making a record high is because the Fed is cutting rates and because the market knows that the Fed is going to keep cutting rates. Because if the Fed was not cutting rates, if the Fed was still raising rates, which it should be doing, the market would be considerably lower than it is right now. But because the Fed has come to the rescue of the market, the market is up. Yet, of course, all Donald Trump can do is criticize uh, the Fed, yet the Fed is already acting in a way to prop up the markets because it was basically the big drop in the market that ultimately was the catalyst for the Fed doing an about face on rate hikes and quantitative tightening. So the Fed is already doing what it can to prop up the economy, except the Fed doesn't wants to pretend rather that the economy doesn't need propping up. Right. The Fed is trying to do the same BS as Trump. If you look at Powell talk, he keeps saying that he doesn't think that there's even a chance of a recession, that the economy is great. Well, if that is the case, why are you cutting rates? Of course, the only reason the Fed is cutting rates is because it knows that without those rate cuts, we would be in recession. We would be in a bear market. Now, maybe the Fed thinks that the reason we're not going to have a recession is because we've preempted it with our rate cuts. But the reality is the rate cuts are not enough, right? The, the economy is heading into recession regardless of what the Fed does. But again, the last thing the Fed wants to do is admit that a recession is coming, even if they're smart enough to see it. But even the voters now, right, I said six out of 10 of these people polled think we're going into a recession. They're right. We are. What they're wrong is they don't realize how severe it's going to be. This is not just going to be a, a garden style run of the mill recession. This is going to be much worse than what we now call the Great Recession. But meanwhile, going to the precious metals markets, we have had a correction in both gold and silver. So as the stock market's been going up, we've seen gold and silver coming down because one of the reasons, at least the short-term reasons, that people were buying gold and silver was because the market was going down and there was some uh, a, a hedge trade, a safe haven trade going on, and people were taking risk off by selling stocks and moving into safe haven assets like gold, like silver, and like treasuries. Now, personally, I don't think treasuries are a safe haven, but some people do. And obviously, people who are buying treasuries as a safe haven, if they're no longer as worried because they think progress is being made on trade, and, and so now they're, they're taking uh, the safe assets off and they're putting the risk trades back on, so they're selling bonds and they're buying stocks. Well, they're also selling gold and buying stocks. And so we've had a multi-day pullback in the price of gold. Although gold was up today about 11 bucks, but we're actually below 1500. We closed at uh, 1496.30 I think up $11. Silver up a dime back above 18 at 1809. Remember, gold got above 1550. Uh, actually, I think closed above 1550 one day, and silver was above 1950. So we've had about a buck and a half pullback in silver, and we've had about a $50 decline, $60 decline actually, in the price of gold. But none of this is changing the uptrends that are now in place. And what is actually driving gold and silver is not trade, and it's not the stock market. It's what the Federal Reserve is doing to prop up the stock market. And not just the Federal Reserve, it is all of the other central banks. It's not the trade war. 
It's the currency war. That's what's driving trade. To the extent that trade factors into it, it's simply because the trade war feeds the currency war. It results in even easier monetary policy. It results in lower interest rates. And that's what we have right now. We have the race to debase. It's a currency war. Everybody loses a currency war. The only winners are gold and silver. And so ultimately, that's what's going to happen. So any kind of pullback, this is all a bunch of noise. Yes, gold and silver prices on a day-to-day basis, when you have so many short-term traders out there, they're going to be impacted uh, by the news and the headlines. But the broader trend, the longer-term trend, is not being driven by those headlines. So what you want to do is take advantage of that volatility. Remember, I said in the last podcast, we had all these clients that were that were trying to pile in to gold as it moved up. I said, wait a minute, you know, if you want to add to your position, wait for a pullback. Don't, you know, don't buy into the rally. Wait for the decline because nothing goes straight up. And now we've had a decent decline from the high. We've pulled back, and so now is a better time for people to add to their gold and silver positions. And even if we end up with a bigger correction, uh, then it might be an even better time. But something tells me that there's not going to be any substantial deep corrections because I think there's too much money uh, moving into the market right now for there to be that big a correction in the price, especially when you look at these major players. Look at the news again. We just got out of Russia. Uh, I think now they have um, 20, what, 22 or something percent of their reserves are now in gold. I mean, $100 billion. I mean, they're now, I think, what the, uh, I don't know if it's fourth or fifth largest holder. But Russia has been uh, beefing up their reserves and I think that's going to continue. They're not anywhere near done. And, of course, China has a lot of buying to do. And more central banks are going to be buying gold. And so any any dip, I mean, they're going to be there to buy those dips. Uh, so I don't expect the dips to be that big uh, when there's so many people trying to buy into them. Another thing, too, that we've seen in the markets, I have seen a decisive move into some of these value stocks. I mean, some of the higher flying momentum names have uh, have seen uh, some of the froth come out uh, in this correction. I'm seeing more names into the value type stocks. Those are the types of stocks that I've been buying. Uh, we've been positioning ourselves for for years. So this has been a pretty constructive week so far as far as uh, some of the beaten down value names that people had been using as a source of funds in order to speculate in momentum names. Now the momentum names are being sold and people are buying back some of these value stocks uh, that are very cheap on a relative basis. And they are still, I think, uh, but obviously less so thanks to uh, some rallies we've seen recently. But, you know, we're still getting at Europe Pacific Capital clients that are closing accounts. Now, it's not nearly as frequent as we were running for a while, like at the end of last year, uh, early this year, you know, we were getting a lot more. I spoke about that on the podcast about clients uh, closing their accounts. But, you know, it's particularly frustrating to me when they close them now. I mean, it's been frustrating all along uh, because I'm convinced that I'm right. And I know that uh, people are throwing away a winning hand and they're just giving up too soon on a strategy that ultimately is going to pay off big. And I still believe that because they've been able to kick the can down the road for as many years as they have, all the problems uh, that led investors to uh, adopt my strategy, all those problems have gotten much worse since the day they initially adopted it. And I ultimately think we're going to make a lot more money because uh, it's going to blow up uh, later than I initially thought. Because in delaying uh, the day of reckoning, they simply made the problems that have to be reckoned with much, much bigger, uh, which means the collapse is going to be much bigger, which means the payday, right, the payoff on this strategy, though delayed, is going to be significantly enhanced. But what uh, is particularly frustrating about people who are uh, closing their accounts now is looking at all the stuff that has happened, right, all of the signs uh, that are there that suggests that we're right, that we were early, but we were right. I mean, gold moving up to a six-year high, right? That is a good indication that we're right, right? Even though the dollar is not falling yet against other fiat currencies, it is falling substantially relative to gold. And that is an important indicator because if the dollar is weakening against gold, that is significant for the dollar and its reserve currency status. And the dollar is showing its weakness first against gold. 
it will ultimately show its weakness against other fiat currencies. Right now, that weakness is being masked. Too many people are thinking the dollar is strong because they're simply uh, looking at it in terms of the euro or other currencies, and they're not paying attention to the dollar's purchasing power in terms of gold. Well, the dollar is buying fewer ounces of gold or grams of gold now uh, than it did. And that is a sign that the dollar is weak and the dollar is going to continue to weaken. But also the fact that the Fed had to stop raising rates prematurely. They never got to normal like they were pretending. They they aborted their attempt just like I said they would. Maybe not as early as I said, but they did exactly what I said they would do. Now they're cutting rates, right? Uh, they're going to go back to zero even though they're not there yet. But of course, once they start cutting, they're not going to stop. They aborted quantitative tightening, just like I said they would do. They never came close to shrinking their balance sheet in the proportion that they said they would. I said from the beginning that they weren't going to do that, but they were pretending for a long time. They kept following through and they were shrinking their balance sheet. They were going through with quantitative tightening. So people who closed their account a year ago, two years ago, they didn't have all of these signs. The Fed was still hiking. They were still pretending they were going to keep hiking. They were still shrinking their balance sheet. They were still pretending they were going to keep shrinking it, right? Gold prices were still, you know, near the lows. Uh, the dollar was still up there. So a lot of the, the things that I had been forecasting hadn't happened yet. But I was asking people just to have faith that they will, just to wait it out. Yes, I know that, you know, so far the U.S. market has been doing really well, but look, look at all the debt, look at the deficits, look at the budget deficits, the trade deficits, uh, the fundamentals of the economy are getting weaker, despite the fact that we're you know, just borrowing a bunch of money and spending it. But I didn't have anything concrete in the market or concrete in government policy to support what I was saying. But now we do, right? Now that so many events that I said would happen have happened, and now that at least the gold market is validating what I've been saying, uh, with its six-year highs, you know, gold has now moved up by 50% since it bottomed out in December of 2015. Remember, everybody was saying that once the Fed starts raising rates, that's it for gold. Gold is going to get killed once the Fed starts raising rates. Well, it bottomed out the day they started. And ever since, gold's been going up. And of course, once they stopped raising rates, the trajectory of that increase has improved, which is something that I was saying from the very beginning. But the Fed is just getting started with the rate cuts. The reality is they're not going to work. It doesn't matter if they go to zero. We're still going to recession. They're going to go back to quantitative easing. All of that should be obvious by now. And a lot of people, a lot of my clients should realize how high the risks are that Trump does not get a second term and that whoever replaces Donald Trump is going to be much worse uh, than Obama. And a lot of people became Europe-specific clients because they were worried about all the damage Barack Obama was going to do. They were correct to be worried. He did a lot of damage. And the Fed papered it over. But a lot of that is going to blow up on Donald Trump's watch. Now he's going to get the blame. And now we're going to replace him with somebody even worse than Obama. So there's so much now that's happening that should be validating everything we've done, right? All the, the moves that we've made, the portfolios that we've created are positioning ourselves for what is about to happen. And given how much has happened uh, recently, right, this year, that makes it so frustrating for me when I still see clients closing out their accounts, uh, even though they, you know, sometimes clients need the money. And that's, you know, part of the times. I've had clients say, look, I, I don't want to close my account. I wish I didn't have to, but I, I need the money and this is the only place I can get it. So sometimes that happens too, which is probably that's going to happen you know, more often if the economy is as weak as I think. But a lot of people are not closing their accounts for that reason. They're just closing their accounts because, you know, maybe they want to invest in the real estate market or they want to invest in the U.S. stock market. They think it's time to do something else because they've been a client long enough and they don't they haven't made the type of returns uh, that they initially thought. Well, my feeling is they're actually going to end up making even better returns than they initially thought. They're just going to have to wait a little longer for those returns to materialize. But then even if they go back to day one and annualize them, they're still going to be ending up with a larger annual return than what might have been the case had everything blown up years earlier. Now, as a matter of fact, if you just look at the performance of our accounts going back a year, 
Right? We're actually outperforming now the S&P 500 by a decent margin. All of my strategies, whether it's a value or dividend payers or you're in any of my wrap accounts, we're outperforming. Now, certainly if you're just in the gold fund or in gold stocks, you're dramatically outperforming. But even if you don't count the gold stocks, even if you look at the non-gold stocks, those stocks are still beating the S&P 500. And that's even with the dollar going up. Obviously, if the dollar was going down, we would be beating by an even larger margin, but the dollar has still gone up. But I really wish the clients who are leaving would pay more attention to what's happening now. Pay attention to the change in trend. Don't just focus on how the account has performed relative to the U.S. stock market from the day the account was opened. Look at how it's performing recently. Look at the last year as potentially indicative of an important change of trend that may continue for many, many years. So to me, what's happening right now is simply a validation of our strategy. And I wish nobody was closing their account. I'm glad that fewer people are doing so. And in fact, on an optimistic or encouraging note, we are getting a pickup in new accounts. More people are now reading the writing on the wall, seeing what's happening and making the correct decision to open up accounts. And what I really like is when clients now who have been you know, sticking this out for a number of years, who now can see the light at the end of this tunnel. So clearly, they're taking advantage of the opportunity now to add to their accounts, to send more money in, uh, to get more money out of U.S. dollars before the bottom drops out, and to have more money into foreign stocks, gold and silver, mining stocks, before they go through the roof. Mm -hmm.